Well, what a powerful name it is indeed, the name of Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name, the name, and one day, very soon, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no rival, there is no equal, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved than the awesome, majestic, and powerful name of Jesus. Father, I pray right now we would be absolutely stunned with the implications of that truth. Father, and we would take our rightful place humbly, dependently before you right now and humble ourselves under the authority of the Word of God Himself, Jesus Christ. Father, uh, whatever we may be bringing in here today, whatever distractions, whatever discouragements, whatever weariness, whatever hopelessness, whatever sickness, God, I pray right now we just leave that at the foot of the cross. You would remove distractions in this place and say what you want to say to your people. God, find a people that are hungry to know you today, that are hungry to love you more today and to be changed by you today, not walking in pride as we hear your word, but saying, Lord, change me. Change me to be more like you today, to reflect the image of the greatest name ever given. So Lord, be with my mouth, guard it from error, and say what you want to say to your church today. In Jesus' name, church, if you agree, say amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, church, what a blessing it is to be here with you again this morning by the grace of our Lord. Let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. And if you do not have a Bible, our ushers are coming forward right now. Just put your hand up nice and high. You're going to want a Bible in front of you to follow along. Just put your hands up. They'll place one in front of you. And if you do not have a Bible at home, then please keep that and take that as a free gift to you so that you can continue to study God's Word on your own time as well. John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. We're at the end of the prologue. For those of you who've been here the last few weeks, this is our main series of the year. We're going verse by verse, line by line, through the Gospel of John. Getting back to the foundations, the heart itself of the Gospel. John chapter 1, 14 to 18, and the title of this morning's message is this, The Word Became Flesh. The Word became flesh, and that title itself is reflective of what is nothing less, loved ones, than the most, get this, get this, ready? The most staggering, the most mind-blowing, and the most life-changing event in all of human history. That is what that title is reflective of. Let's say that again. The most staggering the most mind-blowing, and the most life-changing event in all of human history. What is that, you ask? It's called the Incarnation, where God became a man. Awesome. Where God became a man. You say, well, what's so special about that? Okay, okay, let's dissect this a little bit. Let's think about what that means. The eternal God who has existed before any of the creation of the world, who existed before time itself, conformed to time. 
about this? The infinite God who knows no beginning and who knows no end became finite. The invisible God, which as you will see here in a moment, none has seen, who dwells, as 1 Timothy 6 says, in inapproachable light, became visible. The supernatural one reduced himself to the natural. Are we starting to get the magnitude of what this is? Are we starting? Because if we don't understand the magnitude of it, we will not give the incarnation the respect that it demands. God himself becoming a man. But here's the cool thing. As if that wasn't cool enough already. The supernatural one reduced himself to the natural and became fully man. Oh, wait, wait, wait. That's not the whole story. While staying fully God at the same time. Is anyone's head starting to get a little blown here today? All right? Fully man, yet fully God at the same time. You say, well, why would God do this? Why would God do this? He was in perfection. He was in eternity. He was in heaven. He's perfectly old. Why would he do this? I love how C.S. Lewis puts this. You'll see it on the screen. Theologian C.S. Lewis, he says this. The Son of God became man to enable men to become the sons of God. There it is. There's the incarnation. There's a purpose for the greatest miracle ever in the human history. The Son of God became man to enable men to become the sons of God. And that is what we are going to unpack today. See, we must understand this. You say, why is this so important that John in his gospel, through the prologue of the first 18 verses, has come back to this again and again and again, and is setting the trajectory for where we're going in the rest of the book? Why would John spend so much time on this? Because we must understand this, loved ones. All of Christianity rises and falls on this truth, that God became a man. That's why. That is the weight of it. That is the importance of it. All of Christianity rises and falls on the truth that God became a man. But there's a problem today as we look around. Do you see this, loved ones? Because this, because this is the central miracle of all the Christian faith, which gave way to the resurrection which was to come. Listen, listen. That makes it the central point of attack which the enemy will try to twist, distort, and undermine and ultimately deceive us about. If it's the central miracle, it's the central thing the enemy's coming after to discredit it, to distort it, and twist it, to blind us from its implications for our lives and to keep us from responding to it and living in its power. It's the central thing that is attacked. You just look around society today, you'll see it all the time. Attacking the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I'm praying today, I've been praying for you, been wait, feeling the weight all week for you in preparation, that I've just been praying today would be a day of just huge clarity for you by the power of the Holy Spirit. I can do nothing to bring clarity. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And so I've been praying for you this week for that very thing, that you would have an aha moment before the Lord to know where you stand before him and the implications of the word becoming flesh for your life. And here in the text, we're given three central reasons of why God became a man. Three central reasons 
why God became a man, and three critical questions we must ask ourselves because of it if we are to become and live as true children of God. It may be cold outside, but guess what? We're about to get fired up in here. You ready? You ready, loved ones? All right, let's stand to honor the authority of God's word. Here we go. John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. Here we go. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, the first truth we see, the first reason we see for the incarnation is this. God became a man to show us his glory in Jesus Christ. God became a man to show us his glory in Jesus Christ. Key question for us today that sums up this point is this. God has revealed his glory. Am I seeing it? God has revealed his glory. Am I Seeing it. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. What a statement. Verse 15. John bore witness about him and he cried out. This was he of whom I said. He who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me. See, this is one, in verse 14 here, we see one of the most concise statements on the incarnation in all of Scripture. The word there, remember, in verse 14, it says, the word became flesh. John is taking us back to verse 1, where it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Who is the word? It means the logos is the Greek word for that. The logos, the divine self-communication or revelation of God for creation. The divine self-communication or expression of God for creation, revelation, and salvation. God expressing himself. It is literally God revealing himself through his word to his people. Awesome. Awesome. The word is his son, Jesus Christ, who is eternal, who is the creator, who is the son of God. Just look at verses 1 to 5 and it is all jam-packed in there who was Jesus Christ, fully God himself, who became flesh and dwelt among us. Now notice that key word right there. Don't miss it. Remember this, loved ones. Whenever you're reading scripture, have this mentality in of yourselves. Every word is inspired by the Holy Spirit, therefore every word gets preached, and every word's important. Okay, it's in there for a reason. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh. Why is that word became so important? It means, the Greek means came into being. It came into being. God just didn't choose a man. This is under attack. You hear this all the time. God just didn't choose a man who was already created and then fill him with his power. Okay? He didn't just choose a guy and then fill him. Jesus took on flesh. He took on the human body. And don't forget this. We tend to overlook this, right? It's not just a human body. He took on human nature. He took on human nature. What does that mean? Personality. 
emotions. Fully man in every respect. He was literally made human in every way while at the same time, here's the staggering part, if that wasn't enough, at the same time, keeping all of his divine attributes and not ceasing to be fully God. Let's let that sink in for a moment. We tend to overlook this, don't we? We think, well, Jesus was God, so of course he didn't sin. Jesus did that. Listen, listen, loved ones. He took on every aspect of humanity except their sin. But he was tempted to sin. He was tempted in the same ways we are. He experienced the same things we did. He experienced the same emotions we do. Let's not overlook that. That should be a great comfort to us this morning. And notice where it says, the word became, so he took on flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there in the Greek means this, he pitched his tent. That's what that means. You're like, what? Pitching a tent. We have any campers in the room? Seriously. So here's Jesus pitching his tent. What on earth does that mean? This imagery goes back to the Old Testament and is describing, get this, love this, the Old, the tabernacle of God that God instructed the Israelites to make so his presence could dwell with them in their camp as they roamed around the wilderness. So here's what's happening. He says, the word became flesh and now dwelt or pitched his tent, set up the tabernacle among men. Isn't that amazing? So he's hearkening back to Exodus 25 and 33 where God has the Israelites build a tabernacle so his presence, which looked like, you'll see it right here. This is what it looked like in the wilderness. So you see there on the bigger picture how the camp of Israel's all around the tabernacle. Okay? All right? And there's, you see that cloud coming from, from the temple or the, the tent of meeting, they like to call that. And here's what it means. That's how God manifested his presence. Another a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud. Right? So here's Jesus now. Set, picture this. Jesus setting up his tent, not with cloth or wood, but with human flesh. The presence of God among his people. The place where God would reveal his glory to them. Now that Jesus Christ, God himself, became flesh, he was the new tabernacle that displayed God's glory to his people in full. What the Israelites saw in part here now people could see in full through Jesus Christ. Awesome. Awesome. So he's pitching his tent, not with cloth and wood, but human flesh. This is why John goes on to say in verse 1, he says, and we have seen his glory. This is why. Jesus pitches his tent among them, and we as Christians have seen his glory. Okay, what's the word for glory there? We have to understand because we, we get mixed ideas of what the glory of God means. All right? And so let's, let's dive what God says his glory means. The glory of God is the, the Greek word doxa. Okay? That's why our, our Quebec church plant, Lord willing, is being called Eglise doxa, glory church. Okay? So the Greek word there for glory is doxa, the visible manifestation of God. The greatness of God, his majesty on display, his splendor, his power seen visibly. Before, in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, now in human flesh. The glory of God, we have seen his glory. Jesus was the one and only son of God who is exactly, how can we see the glory of God? Because here's who Jesus is. He is exactly alike the Father, God the Father, in all his attributes, and is himself God. That's why Jesus says in John 10, 30, just keep reading, we'll get there in a few months, but you keep reading, and he says, I and the Father are one. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. One being three distinct persons. And right here we're seeing two persons. The first two persons introduced in John of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son. We'll get to the Holy Spirit in a little bit. All right? One being, but three distinct persons, all fully God. And you say, well, how do you know that? That's a big statement. Okay, well, let's go to God's word. Hebrews 1.3, you'll see it on the screen. He says this, describes Jesus. He is the radiance. Look at that. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And just to leave you with a boom this morning, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's awesome. He's exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his word. Awesome. To see Jesus was to see God himself. To look in the face of Jesus was to look in the face of God. Loved ones, if you are in Jesus Christ here, if you have repented of your sin and trusted in him as your Lord and Savior, let me ask you a question. Does that not fire you up that you have an eternal inheritance guaranteed where you will look in the face of Jesus Christ and see God Almighty himself? Let that stir us up this morning in our pursuit of him. And if that wasn't enough, look at Colossians 2.9. You see it on the screen. For in him, in Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity, that is the fullness of God, dwells bodily. Fully God, fully man. So how did, how did God show us his glory through Christ? I mean, what does this look like? Well, we see here in the text John sums it up in two ways that God shows us his glory through Jesus Christ. Ready? Through his grace. Through his grace. Look at verse 14 again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Ready for this? What's the glory like? Full of grace and truth. Full of grace. Look at this. The word, uh, Greek word for grace there means this. God's unmerited favor towards man that brings blessing to them. That's the, that's the Greek for grace there. God's unmerited favor towards man that brings his blessing to them. It is literally God giving you and I what we don't deserve. Through his presence. Listen to this. Listen to this. Ready? Through his presence. Through his mercy. Through his compassion, through his goodness, through his steadfast love, through his faithfulness, through his sympathy, through his help that he gives, through his strength that he gives. And that's just to name a few. God giving us what we don't deserve. And so often we think, so often we think God's glory only means this. Bright, shining lights, pillars of fire, theophanies. Loved ones, hey, let's get clarity here. That is part of it. God chooses to reveal himself that way and has, as we see through scripture. Um, Exodus 33, one of the most beautiful prayers in all of scripture, Moses prays in verse 14. He says, please show me your glory. Show me your glory. And how does God respond? He says, my goodness will pass by you. You will have my mercy and you will have my compassion. All reflective of God's glory. Are you seeing it? Am I 
every day. How about this? Are you seeing his goodness through uh, the strength he gives you? Hey, parents, I'm a father of four little boys by the grace of the Lord, but do you ever see God's glory through the strength he gives you to parent your kids? That's his compassion for you. That's his goodness towards you. That's a demonstration of his glory towards you. How about this? Spouses, do you ever see God's glory by the goodness he gives you to love your spouse when it's hard and when your flesh wants to retaliate? But when you say, Jesus Christ, help me to do what honors you right now and you see that peace come and then you see God's glory in that marriage. His goodness his compassion. How about this? You see it in the strength he gives to serve him faithfully. You see it in the comfort or in the healing he gives you in times of sorrow, loss, or sickness as you draw near to him. A demonstration of God's glory, his goodness. How about this? We see God's glory in the power he gives us to fight sin. And to see sin defeated in our lives as his image increasingly grows in us. As we become more like him. God's glory is all around us, loved ones. And so often we can just say this. Yeah, show me your glory, Lord. I'm not seeing it. Show me your glory. He says, it's right in front of you. Take a look. You don't need a pillar of fire for that. It's right in front of you. Look at my goodness. Look at my compassion. Look at the mercy. love this. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says this. For we do not have a high priest. This summarizes the incarnation so beautifully. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, hey loved ones, be encouraged, every respect has been tempted as we are. You don't think Jesus went through that temptation you're facing? You don't think that, you think that trial in front of you is too big, that Jesus has, doesn't know how to overcome that, that Jesus didn't have to overcome that, that he's not ready to show you his glory by giving you the strength and the power and the peace to go through that? He's tempted in every way, yet without sin. Let us then, as a result of that, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. The throne of grace is the throne of glory. The throne of grace, full of grace and truth, God's glory that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hey, loved one, can I just encourage you? I don't know what you've gone through this week. I don't know the conversations you've had with other people. I don't know the news you got from the doctor this week. But I do know this. I do know this and can say this in confidence. Ready? God knows exactly what you are going through and how it feels. The question is, will you draw near to him? His glory is ready to be seen. Will you see it? Are you drawing near to the throne of grace and allowing you to show him, show you his glory? Two ways that God shows us his glory through Jesus Christ. Number one, through his grace. Number two, through his truth. Just take the text. Let's keep going. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as, a, as of the only son from the father, full. You know what that full word means? It means super abundance of grace and truth. You think God's ever gonna run out on being able to show his grace to you? Not a chance. He never hits a ceiling of grace. Overflowing, super abundance. And then look at verse 15. John bore witness about him 
and cried out, this, is, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. See, the truth there, he's full of grace and full of truth. This is God's divine truth revealed to man through his promises and wisdom in his word. This is God's divine truth, which is the absolute truth of reality, by the way. Revealed to man through his promises and wisdom in his word, but not only through his word, through the testimony of his witnesses who've seen, who've seen him and now declared him. That's, that's John right there in verse 15. Verse 15, John says this. He declares, John the Baptist, declares the truth of God by saying Jesus Christ was before him. What's he going back to? Same back in verse 1. He was eternal. See, here's a witness of God laying eyes upon the Savior. He is eternal. He was over him in rank. Now, that's significant because John was born six months before Jesus. And in the Old Testament times, whoever was born first gets the goods. But look at John the Baptist. He's six months older than Christ, and yet he says, he is over me. He is over me in rank. Why? Because Jesus Christ was God and John was not. Hey, loved ones, here's how we sum that up. God's truth shows God's glory. God's truth shows God's glory. Let me ask you a question. Are you seeing God's glory through his truth, through his word? No wonder the devil tries to, so hard to keep you and I out of it. Don't go to the word of God. Go to Facebook. Don't go to the word of God. Go to popular opinion of culture. Don't go to the word of God. No wonder he tries so hard. Don't go to the word of God. Sleep in. Don't go to the word of God. Go rely on your flesh. The wisdom of man. He tries to keep us out because that's where we see God's glory. We see it revealed through his word. Are you seeing God's glory through his truth? You say, so often we say, God, show me your glory. And he's like, hey, loved one, I will. Will you open the book, please? Just open the book. I've revealed myself. This is the word of God. Jesus Christ revealed God's heart, God's passions, God's faithfulness, God's love. You want to see the glory of God? Oh, loved ones, I can't exhort you in this enough. Make time to be in front of God's word every single day. I'm not talking some legalistic thing. I'm talking, listen, abiding with Christ because apart from him we can do nothing, right? Right? We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Abide with the Lord. And listen, I got to just say this. Telling you from experience, speed is a killer of intimacy with the Lord. Speed is just to go, well, I'll just do it as I'm dashing out the door. Word became flesh, dwelt among us. Sweet! Kids off to school. No, listen, loved ones, loved ones. Spend some time. Get up 10 minutes earlier, whatever. Just spend some time to get in front of the Lord and to see his glory through his word. His grace in our lives through what he gives us and the truth we see his glory through his word that he reveals to us. Are you? Are you seeing it? God became a man to show us his glory in Christ Jesus. So that would lead us to this. God became a man to give us salvation through Christ Jesus. We see his glory and he became a man to give us his salvation through Christ Jesus. Key question for this point is this. God has offered me salvation. Have I received it? God has offered me salvation have I received it? Look at verses 16 and 17 now. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given 
through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, John John now tells us what God's people have received through his fullness of grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Notice he says, we have received grace upon grace. What does that mean? Well, if you look, if your Bible is like mine, you'll see a superscript note there. In verse 16, grace upon grace. Go down to the bottom of your page and find that number by it. It says, or grace in place of grace. What's talking to this? What's he talking about here? Right? Grace upon grace. Grace is to be read as this. Read as grace instead of grace. Grace replacing grace. What's he talking about on this? Well, we got to look at verse 17. Loved ones, this is why you got to read the Bible in context. You can't just take one verse and then start to name it and claim it. Okay? you got to read the Bible in context. Context is key. Verse 17 interprets verse 16. Let's have a look. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When he's talking about the law being given through Moses, it is the law of God given by God to Moses. He's bringing back Moses again, as we talked about earlier. He gives the law to Moses while Israel's in the wilderness... And the law of God, you can read it. It's the first five books of the Bible. It's called the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. First five books of the Bible. And it was an... Did you know... We have this... The law gets a bad rap today. Especially in Christian circles. You're law, bad, Jesus, good. Law, bad, Jesus, good. Hey, loved ones. Time out. God never calls his law bad. The law was an act of grace given by God to his people. You say, How? How? We have to understand what its purpose was, and you'll see. It was an act of grace towards his people because it revealed his character. The law of God revealed the character of God and the righteous requirements for holiness that he demands from his people in order to live in relationship with him. It displayed God's perfect holiness, his perfect nature. And now we cannot walk in our sin and be reconciled in relationship to him. Its purpose was to show the unrighteousness of man and his inability to meet the standards of God's holiness. One of the worst, what a loving thing for God to reveal. How bad would it be if God's like, hey, I'm a savior of the world, but I'm not going to let you know why you need me. This is what the law revealed. Our unrighteousness and our inability to meet the standards of God's holiness on our own. And it showed, his, it showed us our absolute need for a savior. Because God is perfect. And we needed a perfect savior to take the punishment for our sin that you and I deserved. This is what the law is revealing. This is why the law was an act of grace. But we must understand this. This is where the law gets mixed up. John says the law itself was a gift of grace for his people. Grace, and then he says, upon grace. Okay, law was a gift of grace for his people, that God revealed their sin and their need for him. But here's the thing about the law. It had no saving power. It had no ability to save people. It just showed and illuminated their need for a savior. So let's not get on the law being all bad. This was a loving act of grace for the Lord. It had no saving power at all, though. The power of salvation came through the grace that replaced that grace, Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? You with me? Just nod if you're with me. Okay, cool. Praise the Lord. 
Jesus Christ, which replaced the law and didn't just destroy the law, but he fulfilled it so we could be reconciled to God in a right relationship with him. You say, what do you mean? I thought the law was all bad. Look at verse five, Matthew 5, 17. You'll see it on the screen. Jesus says this, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish it, make it negatory, make it not applicable for your life anymore. You say, well, we're under the new covenant. Yeah, here's why. He says, don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill it because you could not on your own. So I, the word of God, pitched my tent with you and became the perfect sacrifice for you. That is the grace that replaces grace. Grace upon grace. The law revealed in part what Christ revealed in full. This is why there's this mentality out there today that says you can just kind of unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. You can unhitch the Old Testament from Jesus because we're under the new covenant. Listen, loved ones, this is just one snapshot. The entire Old Testament points to Jesus. This is what he's saying. The whole law that was given by God to Moses was pointing to Jesus. It was pointing to what Jesus would fulfill. He's showing them the need for the Savior and the one that he sent, the one that became flesh, fulfilled it. You can't unhitch Jesus from the Old Testament. That's like saying unhitch Jesus from Jesus. How does that work? You can't do that. So you say, well, let's illustrate this. Okay, go ahead. You're going to see this picture on the screen here. This is what the grace of the law showed. Okay, the law given to Moses. It showed this. People, that's you and me, sinful. I'm on one side of this cliff in my sin, in my rebellion, and in my separation from God. That's you and I without a Savior. If you're here today and you have not confessed Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is you on the edge of this cliff right here. Okay? And then here's what also the the law showed. God is holy. He is perfectly holy. He's perfectly just. And he's a God of peace, forgiveness, and abundant life that he offers. But there's an issue. There's a chasm between you and I. You and him. There is a chasm there that cannot be crossed. And notice this. Notice in the text. Go back. It says this. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses to expose this. Right here. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The saving grace came through. What that shows is, hey, we can try to make that jump on our own. We can try with our good works. We can try with our own effort. We can depend on, as we talked about last week, our heritage of faith. That's Well, my parents were Christians, so then I'm good. My, I was born into a certain family, so I'm good. Doesn't work like that. You and I cannot cross that on our own. It is not through your effort. It is not through my effort. We will never be good enough for that. God is perfectly holy and just. It says it came through Jesus Christ. Not through any other God this world promotes. Acts 4.12 says there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. So look at, look at the grace that replaced the grace of the law. Here it is, here it is. Show us. People, sinful, sin, rebellion, separated from God. But then the grace that came upon the grace, the grace that replaced the grace through Jesus Christ coming to earth 
as fully God and fully man and living a perfectly sinless life for 33 years on this earth who was crucified on a cross paying the penalty for our sin that God's holiness demands, that the law exposed. He paid that price on the cross, went to the grave, was there for three days, and then after three days rose again defeating sin and death for all time as a perfect sacrifice for you and me. And now because of the cross, through Jesus Christ, through the grace of Jesus Christ, we can be reconciled to God. Amen. Does that, that's a great spot for an amen, church. Right, right, there it is. Through reconciled to God, through Jesus Christ, and now live as children of God if we have repented of our sin, saying, Jesus Christ, I need you as my Savior. I can't cross that chasm on my own. I need you. It is only through you. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. You don't have to clean yourself up, loved ones. You can't do it. I'll be good enough for Jesus to save me. Can't do it. Can't do it. Grace and truth. God giving you what you don't deserve. That's why. That's the beautiful glory of the God. That's the heart of the gospel right there. That's grace replacing grace. So question, most important question, loved ones, of our lives is this. Have you received saving grace through Jesus Christ? Is this you on this screen? Which side are you on? Just, add, just be honest. The word of God's so clear, just be honest. What side of that chasm are you on? you're like well I'm not sure ask him he'll show you see today when you hear his voice do not harden your heart Bible says let today be the day of your salvation today and believers if you're here and you're like I'm on I'm with the Lord I've been reconciled to God I have a right relationship with him through Jesus Christ let me ask you this question are you walking in the truth of your salvation in Christ Jesus do you believe his grace, the saving grace, is really sufficient for what you are facing or will face? Do you honestly believe that his grace is sufficient for you if you are in Christ? You say, well, how do I know? Well, here, there's this little saying that has been so cutting for me. Your behaviors reveal your beliefs. Your behaviors reveal your beliefs. Example, in how you cling to his word in the face of uncertainty, in the face of anxiety, in the face of a not popular opinion to do so, in the face of doubt or fear. Here, here, here. Do you believe Christ's grace is truly sufficient for you in your worship through the storm? That's how you show it. Lord, I'm, going, I'm getting just destroyed right now through this situation emotionally physically but I'm choosing in faith to worship you because you are the God who's over this and my hope and peace and rest and joy is in you how about this are you believing that Christ's grace is sufficient for you with your peace in the conflict and people walk by you ever see this I was so blessed by this the other day in a visit to one of our church members and in the hospital and doing these things and, and, and people would ask, how, is, how are you so sick and how are you so joyful? How are you so at peace going through that trial? How can you do that? Your world's caving in. You don't know if you've got another two years. And she says, my future is secure. 
My future is secure because his grace is sufficient for me. And even if he never removes this illness, even if he never removes it, until I see him face to face in eternity, my hope is in him and that is not shaken. God became a man to show us his glory in Christ Jesus, to give us salvation through Christ Jesus. But loved ones, hey loved ones, here's the greatest news too. That was only the beginning. God also became a man to enable us to know him because of Christ Jesus. Because of Christ Jesus. Key question for this last point is this. God created me to know him. Am I pursuing him? God created me to know him. Am I pursuing him? Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John ends the prologue here by summing up in one statement the previous 17 verses, what they were all pointing to. Notice there he says, no one has ever seen God. What does the seeing God mean? In the Greek it means this, to look upon his majesty in holiness in a complete and unveiled way. If you and I tried to do that right now in a sinful state, we'd be incinerated. The holiness of God consistently all throughout the Old Testament. He, he only gives a partial shot. He never allows people to see him in his full glory because would, they would die. And so here he is. He says, no one's ever seen God, but the only God. Okay, what's that? Again, do you, see, do you guys have a superscript number on your Bible there after God? The only God. Go down to the bottom of the page. See this. The only one who is God, or some say the only Son. There's what the Greek is saying here. And look at this. This refers to Jesus Christ. If we read it in the original Greek, it would say this. But the one and only Son, who is himself God, and what this is, is declaring Jesus' deity. Going back to verse 1. Back to verse 1. Was God. It's an inclusio John's using. Begin and end the same way. It's beautiful. And he's at the Father's side. Now, what is important about being at the Father's side? It means, the Greek word for side there means bosom. The place of closest intimacy. The place of greatest unity and intimacy with the Father. That is the Son, Jesus Christ. And he, the Son of God, has made the Father known. And what does known mean? It's not like, yeah, I made you known so you can just know a few things about God. No. No. The Greek word there is exegeomai, made it known. I love that word. Exegeomai. It's where we get the English word exegesis, to, to unfold, to explain, to make clear. This is what we're doing right now through the preaching of God's word. This is called exegesis, exegetical preaching, where I'm not coming to the text throughout the week saying, hmm, what do I want this text to say? And then I'm going to insert a meaning into it. No, 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 no. We study so hard, we pray our faces off and get it right because we are exegeting or making clear what God has said and how it applies to our lives. This is what Jesus is doing with God. I love how D.A. Carson said this. He says this, Jesus is the exegesis of God, the making clear of who God is. That's amazing. That is amazing. Jesus is the exegesis, and through him, the mutual love and intimacy that the Son has with the Father at his side is now made available to us. 
And we can draw near to God each day. How do we do that? Here, real fast. Through his word, through prayer, saying, Lord, help me to know you more today. Not just know more about you, but know you. Through worship, through service to Christ, through obedience to the Lord in his power, to grow in our knowledge of him, leading to a greater, here's what knowledge, knowledge of God leading to a greater love for God, leading to a greater intimacy with God, and ultimately the purpose of our lives to a greater worship of him for his glory. Isaiah 43, 7. There it is. I love how the Apostle Paul summed this up right here, Philippians 3. He said this. Indeed, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, look at this, of knowing, sharing a life with Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything else is lost. Everything this world says, achieve this, go here, do this, get this, get this, have this. He goes, everything is lost except for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Greek word there is dung. He's not mincing words, dung. In order that I may gain Christ, that I may know God himself. Loved ones, don't waste your life. Ray, don't waste your life. This is the purpose for why we were created. Isaiah 43:7. I wish I could go through every verse that says that. But let me ask you with this to sum up. God created you to know him. Are you pursuing him as your greatest love? Just think. Be honest. Again, loved ones, there's no condemnation. Just think. Are you pursuing him as your greatest love? Are you still stunned? Are you still stunned, believers, that the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator of all heavens and earth, has made a way for you to know him and to know his hope and to know his peace and to know his strength and to know him who is love? Does that still stun you? That he called you and chose you for that? If not, ask yourself this. What acts of God's grace in your life are taking his place? What acts of God's grace in your life? Like this, maybe your family. Has your family become an idol? Family's a beautiful thing, but we can so easily idolatrize it. How about this? Has your marriage taken your first love over the Lord? Your job? Your hobbies? Your entertainment? Your grade students? Possessions? Money? Comfort? What act of God's grace? Most of these things in and of themselves are okay. They're great things. They're good things. Given to us by God as acts of grace. But here's what we have to remember. John Piper said this, and we land the plane with this. Our ultimate purpose is to know God through grace, not to obtain grace through God. I'm going to say that again really slow. Let it sink in. Our ultimate purpose, the purpose for why you and I were created is to know God through his grace of Jesus Christ. Not to obtain grace. Lord, give me more. Do this. Bless this. Have this. I gotta have this. Get grace through God. No, ultimate purpose is to know him through the grace. That's what all those means of grace are meant to point us towards. Beautiful. This is why God became a man. Showing us his mercy, offering us his salvation, and enabling us to know him because of Jesus Christ. 
Because he, loved ones, we finish with this, is where eternal life is found. Here it is, John 17. And this is eternal life, Jesus says, that they know you. Speaking of God the Father, they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Loved ones, don't waste your life. What's your next step? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your presence here with us. Lord, we thank you for your word that is so clear to us. I thank you that you didn't leave us on our own. That you're not a God who just created us and then left us to ourselves to certain death. But Lord, thank you that grace replaced grace. Thank you that you sent your son to show us your glory full of grace and truth, abounding in grace and truth. That as we confess our sin, oh God, you are faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, God. To turn from our sin, to turn towards you, and there is life, eternal life, as we grow to know you. Father, your love is so astounding and we can't even wrap our heads around it fully. But I thank you for this promise. And Lord, wherever each person is at here today, I pray there would just be great clarity of who you are and the next step we need to take in our walk with you by the power of your Holy Spirit. And as we sing this last song, God, I pray this would be the anthem of this church for decades and decades and decades to come until you call us home. That Jesus Christ, one name is higher, one name is stronger. Christ is over all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.